This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Cardiopulmonary Interactions by Dr. Jordan Reddig. Hello, my name is Jordan Reddig, and I'm an attending physician in the Division of Critical Care Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. Today I'll be discussing cardiopulmonary interactions with particular attention towards positive pressure ventilation. So I wanna just start by illustrating the differences between a positive pressure breath and a spontaneous breath. So if we look here at our graph, we have pressure and time on the x-axis. And if you look at the mechanical breath, I just wanna highlight the fact that as we look throughout the course of the inspiration and expiration of that breath, it is all positive pressure. Whereas with the spontaneous breath, you see there is an element of negative pressure. And that's very important when we wanna discuss the effects on cardiopulmonary interactions. So I would like to start off by talking about some cardiac basics. So we need to talk about cardiac pump function. The components of pump function are preload, afterload, myocardial contractility, and heart rate. Honestly, when we're talking about positive pressure ventilation, we're going to be affecting preload, afterload, and perhaps contractility because we're gonna be affecting afterload. We're likely not gonna be affecting heart rate with any of those maneuvers. But it is important to realize that cardiac output is a component of stroke volume, which is made up of preload, afterload, and contractility times the heart rate itself. So when we look at cardiac performance, I just wanna go through the basics of of this because this is an essential physiologic framework for how we discuss how, vent how ventricles are functioning. It's important to note the caveat that this is a model of the left ventricle. The right ventricle does have very similar interactions, but obviously different anatomy. And this is again meant to be a framework for us to discuss how we are going to mitigate various elements of this with positive pressure ventilation versus spontaneous breathing. So if we start at point A on this graph, this is mitral valve opening. And the distance between point A and point B where the mitral valve closes is essentially filling. And so this is where the heart should be in its most relaxed state. And this is where the preload comes in and the heart fills up, getting prepared to eject its stroke volume. If you go from point B to point C, that's the point from the mitral valve closing. You get isovolumetric contraction and the aortic valve opens at point C. Most importantly, I wanna point out between C and D. Between C and D is the period of ejection. And if you look at our diagram here, you'll see that the distance between C and D corresponds to the stroke volume. So there are a couple important elements here. Obviously filling, which has to do both with diastolic compliance as well as with preload. And then we wanna talk about ejection, which has to do with inotropy and afterload and ultimately determines your cardiac output. As we go through this talk, we're going to discuss how positive pressure ventilation is going to affect these relative relationships. And so it's important to keep this as a framework for how you think about cardiac performance. Let's talk specifically about preload, afterload, and contractility. So to be granular about it, when we look at that same graph, somewhat simplified, I wanna point out here that there are two dashed lines on this graph. The dashed line at the bottom that's slightly curved is known as the end diastolic pressure volume relationship. 
And this basically signifies how the ventricle relaxes. The vertical dashed line represents the end systolic pressure volume relationship. And this is a combination of afterload and how well the heart muscle squeezes against that afterload. If you look at the gray box, this is the normal ventricle. And again, this is a model of the left ventricle, but this can generally be applied to both sides of the heart. The gray box represents the normal myocardium. So if you look at the bottom dotted line, you have a normal end diastolic pressure volume relationship. If you look at the vertical dotted line, you see that in the gray box, you have a, a normal ejection and a normal end systolic pressure volume relationship. What I specifically want to talk about, though, is afterload. And that changes the end systolic pressure volume relationship. So if everything remains the same about myocardial relaxation, about the diastolic relationship, for the same given preload, your stroke volume is going to depend on how much afterload you have. The gray box is normal. This box shows what happens when you have increased afterload. And increased afterload or increased systemic blood pressure definitely will reduce your stroke volume. If you imagine the area from C to D defining your stroke volume, that area is smaller. Likewise, if you decrease the afterload, that would be the green box. And when you decrease the afterload, you notice that the area from C to D is larger. The stroke volume is larger. What this indicates is that for the same diastolic conditions and the same preload conditions, afterload is going to directly affect your ability to maintain your cardiac output. This is important because positive pressure ventilation will affect afterload. If we look at preload, so again, looking at our dotted lines, in this particular example, the vertical line that represents the end systolic pressure volume relationship maintains the same because we're assuming the same amount of afterload in this patient. We're assuming the same blood pressure. And if you look at the bottom dotted line that's slightly curved, this is the end diastolic pressure volume relationship. This relationship looks normal. If you had a heart that didn't relax as well, you would see a different shape to this curve. But the point of this is that under the same conditions, under the same diastolic relaxation, if you have normal preload, you're in the gray box. If you have decreased preload, you're in the green box. And what that means is that in the same ventricle, under the same conditions, with the same systemic blood pressure, if you acutely decrease venous return, you are gonna decrease the distance from C to D, which is the stroke volume or cardiac output. Likewise, under the exact same conditions, if you increase the venous return, for example, by giving a fluid bolus, then you're gonna see the blue box, where you've actually increased the preload. You've increased the area from C to D, and therefore you've increased the stroke volume and cardiac output. Preload. So as we mentioned before, uh, when we started talking about preload, one of the major components uh, that are involved in cardiac output is preload and therefore how much blood you're able to eject from the heart. One of the things that happens during positive pressure ventilation is your ability to get venous drainage may be compromised. This diagram is actually an example of what happens during negative pressure or spontaneous breathing as we like to call it. So systemic venous drainage, which is the broken arrow, depends on a driving pressure between the extrathoracic great veins and the right atrium. This is a very fundamental physiologic concept. What we're talking about here is the hydrostatic equivalent of Ohm's law. Flow is driving pressure over resistance. If you remember that through this talk, a lot of what we say will become very logical. 
So the idea here in this diagram is that during spontaneous breathing, the pleural and right atrial pressure falls because your intrathoracic pressure is becoming negative. And therefore, there's less pressure in the right atrium and it's easier for blood to return. Additionally, as you're taking a breath in, your intra-abdominal pressure and your pressure in your extrathoracic great veins is going to rise. So you have the combined benefit of decreasing the right atrial pressure with negative intrathoracic pressure, and you also have an increased abdominal pressure. So if you think of it in terms of flow as driving pressure over resistance, when you're spontaneously breathing, your body is well set up to actually augment your venous return. We can also say this in a different way. Systemic venous return is the mean systemic venous pressure minus the rate atrial pressure over the resistance in the systemic veins. For those of you who prefer graphs, this might be more logical. The idea still is that flow is driving pressure over resistance. The question becomes though, when we introduce positive pressure ventilation, how do these changes happen? Because what we talked about in the first two slides was that we were talking about uh, this in terms of negative pressure ventilation and spontaneous breathing. Now this is a diagram showing aortic flow, pulmonary artery flow, and vena cava flow. And what we note, if you look at the bottom, is that on initiation of positive pressure ventilation, all of these things go down because all of what I said before is now the opposite relationship. So when we have negative uh, pressure in the thorax generated by spontaneous breathing, the right atrial pressure falls, the abdominal pressure rises, and you get better venous return. When you introduce positive pressure into the thorax, you are going to increase your right atrial pressure, and it's going to be harder for that venous return to come in. So right uh, from the beginning of positive pressure ventilation, you may see a decrease in cardiac output due to the fact that you don't have as much venous return. So when we think about right atrial preload and positive pressure ventilation specifically, we need to think about the physiologic changes that are gonna happen acutely in our patients. And as we prepare for getting those patients ready to tolerate positive pressure ventilation, there are some maneuvers that we like to do in the ICU. To begin with, we like to give them volume. We like to make sure that somebody is euvolemic. We like to choose sedation agents carefully because if you make somebody very venodilated, in addition to the fact that you will have an increased intrathoracic pressure, you're also gonna venodilate them and so they'll have less of a driving pressure uh, in terms of venous return. And there's also going to be an increase in RA pressure due to a change from negative to positive pressure as we mentioned before. On initiation of positive pressure ventilation, we do need to remember that there is a decrease in the systemic venous return due to venodilation and an increase in RA pressure due to change from negative to positive intrathoracic pressure. That is the take home. So one of the things I wanna talk about, so we've spoken about right atrial preload, and I think we understand the concept. Flow is driving pressure over resistance. When you move from spontaneous breathing, negative intrathoracic pressure to a positive intrathoracic pressure, you are gonna create increased right atrial pressure, which is gonna be an impediment to getting venous return. Afterload. So now that we've talked about the preload and the fact that the preload may be affected by positive pressure ventilation, I wanna take a minute to talk about the afterload. If you recall where we started this lecture, we said that there are a couple ways to augment cardiac output. One of them is with preload and one of them is by mitigating the afterload. When we think about the right ventricular afterload, it's a little bit different than the left ventricle. The left ventricle has an afterload that is basically defined 
by your blood pressure, for lack of a better phrase. When we think about the right ventricle, we're actually talking about afterload in terms of the pulmonary vasculature. So what we want to do is we want to mitigate pulmonary vascular resistance. So I want to talk about mitigating right ventricular afterload. So we just talked about the fact that preload um, can be adversely affected by mechanical ventilation or positive pressure ventilation, because we talked about the relationship of once you induce or once you uh, introduce positive intrathoracic pressure, you're going to have a higher rate atrial pressure and less likely to get venous return. But I do want to talk about afterload, because I think traditionally people think that mechanical ventilation or positive pressure ventilation is bad for the right ventricle. And often they think that because of the relationship between the decreased preload and positive pressure in the thorax. I just want to be careful, though, to articulate that right ventricular afterload is equally important in the right ventricular function. If you recall where we started this lecture, we talked about the components of cardiac function, and we talked specifically about preload and afterload, and how you could actually increase cardiac output if you mitigated afterload. What this essentially shows is that overall, in the lung, if you are too atelectatic or you're too overdistended, you're likely to have elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. So if you have a patient that actually needs recruitment or requires positive pressure to allow their lungs to be open, in some ways, even though you might be impairing their venous return to their right atrium, you're likely going to be augmenting the afterload of the right ventricle insofar as you're going to be reducing it and actually making cardiac function better. If you look at this graph, it describes the relationship of the alveolar and extraalveolar vessels, but the total relationship is quite clear. When the lung is atelectatic, you have high pulmonary vascular resistance due to hypoxic vasoconstriction. And when the lung is overexpanded, you have high pulmonary vascular resistance due to mechanical compression. So it's essentially, if you look at RV afterload mechanical ventilation, the goal of mechanical ventilation is to restore functional residual capacity. On induction, sometimes we do consider recruitment maneuvers, which is putting a relatively high amount of pressure into the lung to begin with in order to restore volume to reach functional residual capacity. But we must balance the effects of preload and afterload because you are hearing, in fact, a mixed story. As stated before, the preload may be adversely affected, but if you titrate your ventilation correctly, the afterload may be mitigated to increase cardiac output. So the clinician is constantly going to have to balance between those two relationships. When we think about left-sided preload, so we just talked about the right side of the heart, and now we're going to shift to the left side of the heart. Pulmonary venous return is essentially the mean pulmonary venous pressure minus the left atrial pressure over the pulmonary venous resistance. Again, this is a derivation of Ohm's law. This is flow is driving pressure over resistance. In most cases, uh, this is actually determined mostly by the right ventricular output. Unless there is a specific issue anatomically with the left ventricle or with the function of the left ventricle, for the most part, what the right heart puts out will, equivalent, will be equivalent to left ventricular preload. There are a couple of relationships that are important, though, and this is where, in the conceptual physiologic framework, we can use charts and graphs to sort of talk about cardiac output, but in the actual practical patient, we do have to address the fact that there are interventricular relationships. And so what happens on the right side is inherently gonna dictate what happens on the left side. What happens on the right side traditionally is associated with venous return, and what happens on the left side is traditionally associated with cardiac output. But the truth is both sides of the heart depend on both preload and afterload to dictate their function.
So when we talk about transmitted or, or intraventricular relationships between the right ventricle and the left ventricle, we want to talk about the fact that if you have decreased right ventricular preload, you will inherently decrease left ventricular preload because the blood to the left ventricle is all coming through the pulmonary circulation. So essentially, if you have poor venous return to the right side, you're going to have a low cardiac output state. The other thing is if you have increased RV afterload, it will diminish the ability of the right ventricle to pump blood through the pulmonary vasculature. And this is where we really talk about targeting functional residual capacity with our ventilator strategy. Again, getting back to previous slides, we want to mitigate the relationship of pulmonary vascular resistance and lung volume. So we want to target functional residual capacity in order to make sure that the right ventricle doesn't have additional afterload. Some situations where you can get additional afterload include pulmonary hypertension and other pulmonary vascular disease. But in general, if we have a patient without pulmonary vascular disease, we can often successfully mitigate the afterload with our positive pressure strategy. The other thing that is worth noting, because it does come up with patients and it can be quite disconcerting for clinicians, is you can get increased right ventricular filling. Now, I know that for the majority of this talk, we've spoken about uh, briefly spontaneous breathing, but we've shifted focus into positive pressure. I do just want to say that as you approach a patient and you're trying to figure out why they might have a low cardiac output and you're trying to figure out the origin of their respiratory distress, one of the things that's really important to consider is actually somebody who has obstructive disease or restricted, obstructive lung disease or restrictive cardiac disease. Because there is an intraventricular dependence here where if you can imagine increased right ventricular filling, so if somebody is really gasping for breath and they're generating huge amounts of negative intrathoracic pressure, remembering that flow is driving pressure over resistance, they're going to get a lot of venous return each time they take one of those massive negative pressure breaths to overcome the distress that they're feeling. The problem with that is that the right ventricle is actually a lot less sort of stiff and muscular than the left ventricle, and the intraventricular septum does tend to bow at some points. And so if the right ventricle acutely gets filled with increased venous return because of large negative intrathoracic pressure, what can actually happen is the right ventricle can bow into the left ventricle. And bowing into the left ventricle functionally makes the size of that ventricle smaller, and it makes it less compliant, and it makes it harder to fill. So what ends up happening is while you may have more than adequate preload, under those conditions, the left ventricle isn't able to fill, and what you'll see is actually a decrease in cardiac output. So to summarize this particular section, and I know we've said it a lot, but these relationships are very important. So if you look at this graph again, when you augment preload and imagine the curve from C to D, you see stroke volume and cardiac output, and you can see readily how under the same conditions of the myocardium, adding preload will allow you to augment your cardiac output. I also want to talk about left ventricular afterload because this is a really important concept moving forward for positive pressure ventilation. So left ventricular afterload is essentially generated by the law of Laplace. And when we talk about afterload, what we're really talking about is left ventricular wall stress. And I want you to remember this not because this is a physics lesson or because we expect somebody to know the law of Laplace at the bedside. What I want you to remember is the relationship of left ventricular afterload has to do with wall stress. And when we talk about the various changes that happen in the thorax, the difference between spontaneous negative pressure breathing and positive pressure breathing, I think it's gonna make a lot more sense how this can mitigate afterload. 
And once again, back to our, our diagram here, we talked about preload, we're talking about afterload now. And if you look at the end diastolic pressure volume relationship, which is the horizontal line connecting the points D, you see that increased afterload results in decreased cardiac output, decreased stroke volume. So let's talk more specifically about LV afterload mechanical ventilation. So we talked about right atrial preload and we talked about how mechanical ventilation may not be good for that. We talked about right ventricular afterload and we talked about how ventilating to FRC might actually decrease pulmonary vascular resistance and therefore decrease right ventricular afterload. So let's talk about the left side now. So on the left side of the heart, initiation of positive pressure ventilation acts as what we would call a left ventricular assist device because it decreases left ventricular wall stress. That's the law of Laplace. That's why we brought this up in a prior slide because understanding the concept that left ventricular afterload is defined by wall stress makes this a little bit more intuitive. So basically what happens is if you imagine in the thorax, when you generate a spontaneous or negative pressure breath, the thorax is pulling outwards and it creates more wall stress on the left ventricle that's then trying to contract. If you imagine a positive pressure breath where the pressure is coming inwards, you can imagine that that inwards pressure decreases the wall stress and actually allows that ventricle to contract better. So even though there are some adverse effects on preload, one of the great benefits of positive pressure ventilation is to mitigate left ventricular afterload. So we consider positive pressure ventilation when somebody has diminished cardiac function and cardiac output, because if you remember back to where we started this lecture, when somebody has decreased afterload, they can actually acutely have to increase stroke volume. So the other caveat to this though, is attention, strong attention needs to be paid to when we discontinue positive pressure ventilation in those patients who have left ventricular dysfunction because you cannot underestimate the fact that we have provided this left ventricle with an afterload reduction by causing positive pressure in the thorax. When you acutely remove that, if the left ventricular function has not changed from where it was, you may actually have an acute cardiac output failure. You may actually have an acute left ventricular failure. So you need to be very careful about how you add and remove positive pressure ventilation for a variety of reasons, but particularly when you're removing it in the case of left ventricular dysfunction. This is also further exacerbated by excessive negative intrathoracic pressure. So as we spoke about before, a lot of negative intrathoracic pressure definitely helps venous return. But when we talked about the intraventricular relationship, what we also discovered is that excessive venous return can cause bowing of the septum, it can cause an acutely enlarged right ventricle, and it can actually cause a smaller, less compliant left ventricle and therefore decrease cardiac output. If you imagine the scenario of extubating somebody in the ICU, particularly a child who you may not be able to have fully awake and cooperative at the time of extubation, if they start off with left ventricular dysfunction and then additionally get extubated and have a laryngospasm or respiratory distress or anything crying uh, that would prompt them to take large, big breaths, suddenly not only is their left ventricle missing its assist device to mitigate the afterload, but you're then having that adverse intraventricular interaction of the RV becoming acutely dilated with large venous return as a result of big negative pressure breaths. And so you have sort of a double hit 
for losing your cardiac output. So it turns out that while positive pressure ventilation can be a very effective way to support the ventricle, as you remove it, you also have to be extremely careful that you don't suddenly induce a state where the patient would acutely lose cardiac output. Clinical examples. So let's talk about some specific examples, because I know these concepts can be a little bit confusing to talk about abstractly. So we're gonna talk about some patient examples that are fairly common in our practice, and I think help illustrate some of these points. So I wanna talk about obstructive disease. I'll tell you as an intensivist, this is one of the scariest patients we see in the emergency room. This is a patient who is an acute status asthmaticus, has bad obstruction, and there's a question about whether or not you wanna manage his airway, and there's a question about, is this child going to have a significant life-threatening event beyond what has brought him in? And so I wanna use this opportunity, as this is a common disease, to reinforce some of the concepts that we've discussed earlier in the talk. So I wanna talk first of all about dynamic hyperinflation. So I'm talking specifically about the lungs. This, this is not about cardiac function, but they're very much related. So if you think about somebody with an obstructive pattern, if you look at the flow diagram in letter A, what you'll see is somebody who has obstruction, they breathe in and they breathe out, and these are spontaneous breaths, so you're gonna see positive and negative pressures, but they never quite fully exhale. And as they don't fully exhale, if you look over at letter B, what you can see is the lung volume starts to go up. It starts to stack. And that's the physiology of obstructive disease. They become hyperinflated. If you look at C and D, that would be a normal patient. If you normally exhale, your lung volume returns to its normal state and you don't become hyperinflated. So I wanna think about hyperinflation in the context of our asthmatic patient and how that might affect cardiopulmonary interactions. So, there's blood pressure variation with inspiration and expiration due to intraventricular dependence. We've talked about this before, but I think having seen these patients, this will really bring the concept home. During inspiration, we have increased venous return, increased RV preload, bowing of the septum, and decreased left ventricular compliance. The decreased compliance, remember, comes from the fact that you have this big negative intrathoracic pressure, which is adding wall stress to the left ventricle. The decreased filling, leads to a decreased blood pressure, and this process is reversed during expiration. For those of you who have been reading classic physiology, you'll recognize this phenomenon as pulses paradoxus. So what we see here is with an arterial blood pressure and time, when somebody goes through inspiration, and therefore the right ventricle enlarges, there is an adverse intraventricular relationship, and the left ventricle has worsening function due to increased afterload of the negative intrathoracic pressure, you see that the arterial blood pressure goes down. During expiration, this is reversed because those relationships are reversed. So again, pulses paradoxus can occur really because this is a cardiopulmonary talk, it's fair to add that there are a couple scenarios where this can also occur independent of acute obstructive disease. And one important place to talk about this is restrictive cardiac physiology, because that will exaggerate the impact of the intraventricular septal dependence that we've been talking about throughout this talk. So if somebody has a restrictive cardiomyopathy, or if they had potentially a pericardial effusion or other things, we would see an exaggeration of this phenomenon. But mostly what we see in our patients is with obstructive pulmonary physiology. So they have increased work of breathing, which generates increased negative intrathoracic pressure. This increases the LV afterload. 
And basically, you're also um, at the same time having these adverse intraventricular relationships. So that's a good example of why it's important to understand the differences between preload and afterload and how the right and left side function differently. I want to talk about another case, which is perhaps um, a little bit less of uh, an acute situation sometimes, but certainly something that we come across, and actually one of the best uses of non-invasive or positive pressure ventilation. And this specifically, I'm talking about muscular dystrophy, but I think you could generalize this to most neuromuscular disorders that are accompanied by myocardial dysfunction. So essentially, the pathophysiology specifically for muscular dystrophy is kind of interesting. So there's restrictive lung disease, which in and of itself is a little bit of a problem and might require management with uh, chronic ventilation. There's also obstructive sleep apnea. There's hypoventilation largely associated with the muscular disease. And there's a cardiomyopathy. So this is really, I think, one of the most poignant examples of why you have to be particularly careful about your cardiopulmonary interactions, because these patients have both heart disease and lung disease. And understanding how your intervention is going to mitigate each one of those things, either positively or negatively, is very important. And likewise, when you take away the ventilatory support, you want to know what to anticipate in terms of their lung function and their heart function and how that might manifest itself clinically. So I think one of the most important things to consider here is looking at a failing ventricle versus a normal ventricle. So in fairness, when I started off this talk, I didn't just talk about afterload as a way to mitigate cardiac output. I also talked about preload. And I said, if you give volume to somebody or if you have good venous return, you're probably gonna maintain your cardiac output. Well, the trick there is that we had said the entire time that that would depend on a normal and diastolic pressure volume relationship, as in the myocardium relaxes normally. When you have cardiomyopathy, when you have neuromuscular disease, often the myocardium doesn't relax normally and it doesn't squeeze normally. And so those relationships are off. So if you look at this graph in particular, what we see on the top curve is a normal ventricle. And what you see is change in pressure and change in stroke volume. And what you're really seeing is that when somebody has basically uh, low preload state, by giving them preload, you do see an acute change in stroke volume. As they get more and more volume resuscitated, that relationship doesn't hold quite as well. But what you will notice if you look at stroke volume and preload in the failing ventricle, you don't really see a dramatic response to preload. And that has to do with the fact that the myocardium isn't compliant, the end diastolic pressure volume relationship is not intact, and therefore, one of the only ways to support a ventricle like this is really not through mitigating preload. Don't get me wrong, if you deprive that ventricle of preload, you will have problems. But adding additional preload doesn't necessarily solve your problem. This is a ventricle that's going to need afterload reduction and careful inotropic management. So when we think about this, again going back to our graphs, I want to highlight here that there is a relationship not just between afterload, but also with inotropy. And they're completely related um, insofar as they create the end systolic pressure volume relationship. Just to orient ourselves again, the end systolic pressure volume relationship is at point D and is the linear line. The curved line on the bottom of the graph is the end diastolic pressure volume relationship. So this graph is meant to illustrate a couple of things. So the end systolic pressure volume relationship 
is mated by afterload and also by ionotropy. This is why we use things like epinephrine in the ICU when somebody has a failing ventricle. So if you, if you look specifically at the scenario with the figure on the right, what you'll see is there's a decreased ionotropy. And what you can imagine in this end systolic pressure volume relationship, the gray box is normal. The blue box is decreased ionotropy. Likewise, on the left side, you can see increased ionotropy. So I'll encourage you to remember that when we're talking about the end systolic pressure volume relationship, it's mitigated by ionotropy and afterload. So when you're in a low state of ionotropy, insofar as what I mean by that, your ventricle isn't squeezing well. If that occurs, one of the ways you can mitigate that is either by adding an ionotrope or you could mitigate the afterload. So again, when we think about that, going back to our first diagram, if you decrease afterload, you're gonna end up on a different part of the slope for the end systolic pressure volume relationship. So you can imagine going back one, if we look at the decreased ionotropy, and then we imagine moving forward, if we decrease the afterload in a state of decreased ionotropy, we could in fact end up with a relatively normal stroke volume. And that in fact is the entire goal of why we put people with muscular dystrophy and cardiomyopathy on positive pressure ventilation. We do it because it actually helps us to mitigate left ventricular afterload, which in a low um, contractility state, in a cardiomyopathy state, is gonna maintain your cardiac output. The caveats are obvious here. If you use a lot of positive pressure ventilation, you're going to adversely affect preload, so you need to be cognizant of that. You also have to be aware that if you acutely take away the positive pressure ventilation, that left ventricle is gonna have immediate afterload. And in the context of somebody who has cardiomyopathy, they may not be able to cope with that. So you have to be thoughtful, particularly in the floor setting and in the outpatient setting of how you quote unquote sprint somebody off of non-invasive because while their lungs may tolerate it, their heart may not tolerate it. Negative pressure ventilation. So I wanna talk for a minute and I wanna end on a concept that sort of turns everything on its head. I wanna talk about negative pressure ventilation. And I really do think that once you understand cardiopulmonary interactions, you'll be able to go and flip over to negative pressure ventilation. And that's a good test to see if you've understood the fundamental concepts of this lecture. Because if you can explain negative pressure ventilation in the context of the right-sided and left-sided interactions, you really have understood and mastered the material that we're trying to present here today. So just a quick word about negative pressure ventilation because it's not really that common and it's possible that a lot of people haven't heard of it. In fact, we don't use it commonly at all at Boston Children's Hospital right now. It is still around. It was something that started off uh, as the original mechanical ventilator, as many of you recall, the drinker ventilator, and now has come back in various forms. Um, it's not yet totally practical. It really flies in the face of a lot of our physiologic assumptions about positive pressure ventilation and cardiopulmonary interactions, and it makes it difficult for us to figure out exactly how to integrate that into practice. It is, however, more physiologic, because remember where we started this talk, the very first slide where we illustrated the difference between the positive pressure and the negative pressure breath. In a lot of ways, all of the interactions that we're talking about would just maintain as normal if we use negative pressure ventilation. There would be no difference between using a device and not using a device. And invariably, that would be more physiologic. It does, however, depend on what goal you're trying to accomplish. So it is preferred in some diseases where venous return is vital. 
and it is preferred in neuromuscular diseases. Because you can sort of imagine, not just in terms of physiology, but in terms of relative patient comfort, the negative pressure ventilator that has been developed is actually a shell, a cuirass that fits over the chest, and it doesn't involve a mouthpiece or, or a facial interface um, that could potentially be distressing to a patient. And so in a lot of ways, it's more physiologic. In a lot of ways, it could be more comfortable. Uh, people could talk, they could eat, they could wear glasses, they could really function normally in terms of uh, their face and, and their mouth and everything else. Um, however, there are some obstacles. But again, we're here to talk about cardiopulmonary interaction, so we're going to stick to that topic for now. So basically, how does it work? And we're going to talk a little bit about biphasic cuirass ventilation because it's not fair to ask you questions about cardiopulmonary interactions if I haven't told you how the device works. So the pressure applied within the cuirass acts uniformly over the thorax. It works like a shell over the chest. And the lung expansion is also uniform, so it, it ventilates all areas of the, of the lung. There's a negative pressure that gets generated within the chest cuirass for an inspiration or continuous inspiratory assistance. If you think of it in terms of positive pressure ventilation, if it's continuous negative pressure, that's analogous to continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP. If it's something that synchronizes with the patient's respiratory effort and provides bi-level pressure, that's analogous to BiPAP or biphasic positive pressure ventilation. A positive pressure within the cuirass induces uh, expiration if you want to be in that biphasic mode. So basically, there's a sensor at the level of the nose of the patient, and you have negative pressure, and then when the patient starts to exhale, you get a burst of positive pressure, which creates a bi-level difference. But in general, you're maintaining a negative pressure, much as you would maintain some degree of positive pressure, whether you are on CPAP or BiPAP. So as we talked about, CNEP, continuous negative pressure, is analogous to the CPAP. There's a control mode and there's a synchronized mode. And that's important to know because this is coming, this will be in your patients, and each one of these things definitely has a different interaction with your cardiopulmonary status. Advantages include skin integrity, thermoregulation, ability to monitor pressure, um, but potential adverse effects on cardiac output. What do I mean by that? Let's talk about this specifically. Let's go through it in terms of the framework that we've used for the rest of the talk. So I told you at the beginning that right atrial preload was going to depend on venous return. And we talked even further about that by saying it really depends on flow is driving pressure over resistance. And so what we really want to know is the difference between the pressure in the great veins and the pressure in the right atrium. We talked about the fact that during positive pressure ventilation, the right atrial pressure definitely increases. It makes it harder to have good venous return and therefore makes it harder to have right atrial preload. And again, that's the common reason why most people say that positive pressure ventilation is bad for the right side of the heart. If you imagine negative pressure ventilation, though, we're talking about negative intrathoracic pressure. This is analogous to spontaneous breathing. And when we talked about spontaneous breathing, if you recall, when you take a breath in, you generate a negative intrathoracic pressure, which reduces your right atrial pressure. And at the same time, your intra-abdominal pressure increases, giving you a better driving pressure. So your flow is increased because you have a higher driving pressure and less resistance. Negative pressure ventilation would accomplish that well. So if you have a patient who is particularly dependent on preload, a kid who has a dysfunctioning right ventricle or somebody with a very stiff right ventricle or somebody specifically with pulmonary hypertension who's very sensitive to preload, 
this might be a good modality for you to use because the opposite of positive pressure ventilation, negative pressure ventilation is going to augment your preload. But let's talk about one important fact, is left ventricular afterload. So in all honesty, I had started to make an argument about negative pressure ventilation used in chronic patients, many of whom have neuromuscular disease or neuromuscular weakness from chronic illness. And we talked before about positive pressure ventilation, and we specifically talked about left ventricular wall stress. And we determined that wall stress is, in fact, what afterload is. We also further said that left ventricular wall stress was mitigated by positive pressure ventilation because as you induce the positive pressure in the chest, the wall stress went down, left ventricular afterload went down, and your stroke volume would go up. Unfortunately, the opposite would be true in negative pressure ventilation. Remember when we talked about the obstructive patient or patients taking deep gasping breaths that were generating large amounts of negative intrathoracic pressure. As they generated those large amounts of negative intrathoracic pressure, their left ventricular wall stress increased. And as that happened, the ability of the left ventricle to provide stroke volume and cardiac output went down. So negative pressure ventilation, while it may augment the right-sided preload, which in theory should provide you with more cardiac output, practically speaking, you have to be careful because it will increase your left ventricle afterload. And depending on what your patient has, whether they have predominant right-sided dysfunction, left-sided dysfunction, global dysfunction, or no dysfunction, might decide whether or not you think this is an appropriate modality. But in the very least, I think it's a great way to illustrate the cardiopulmonary interactions, and I think it's a good check, because if this makes sense in the context of the rest of the lecture, I think you've mastered the concepts. Review of key points. So I would just say the take-home points, and we repeat these because they're so very important when we take care of patients. Positive pressure impairs right atrial preload as compared to spontaneous breathing. That's why we talk about positive pressure ventilation potentially adversely affecting the right side of the heart. However, if we are able to target functional residual capacity, if we use positive pressure ventilation to do lung recruitment in a patient who's otherwise atelectatic, we may be able to mitigate pulmonary vascular resistance, and therefore we might decrease right ventricle afterload. And if we do that, ultimately, the output from the right side of the heart will be higher and you will potentially have more cardiac output. So it's a mixed story on positive pressure ventilation in the right side of the heart. But I would argue that if you're careful with your volume status and you're aware of the issues of preload, you can successfully use positive pressure ventilation to ventilate to FRC, and you can actually result in an overall very happily functioning right side of your heart. On the left side, left atrial preload depends largely on right-sided conditions, which is why I say that mitigating the right ventricular afterload by ventilating to FRC will ultimately increase your cardiac output. Left ventricular afterload is reduced by positive pressure ventilation. It is absolutely essential to remember that positive pressure ventilation is in essence a left ventricular assist device which can get you out of trouble if somebody has an acutely dysfunctional left ventricle and low cardiac output state, but be aware that if you acutely remove that therapy, you're going to increase that afterload and you may find yourself in an acute low cardiac output state as you remove positive pressure ventilation. 
So I want to thank you guys very much for listening to the lecture. I hope this was informative, and I wish you well in your patient care. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.